wonderful. Good. I'm glad you all are here this morning. It is good to be together, and it is a very nice day, even with a little bit of extra wind. It's beautiful out, and uh, glad we could enjoy this together. Why don't you open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning, James 1. Whenever I give my testimony, uh, some of you have, have heard me give my testimony, uh, but whenever I give my testimony of how I came to Christ and then of how I became or ended up in pastoral ministry, I always mention uh, this moment in my life where I was in high school and I, I came across the book or the writings of A.W. Tozer. Uh, many of you have probably heard of A.W. Tozer before, but I came across the, the writings of A.W. Tozer and uh, asked my dad about him, and he said, well, anything by Tozer you can get, you should read. And so I ordered a copy of The Pursuit of God, which is this tiny little book uh, written by Tozer, I think back in the 50s. Um, and as I started to read that book, it really dramatically changed my understanding of what Christianity, the Christian life, is all about. Uh, I don't think anyone had told me before that the Christian life is all about rules and it's about you know, keeping these rules and, uh, and all of that. But I, I guess I had kind of picked that up somewhere along the way. Um, and that was sort of the underlying tone to the way I viewed Christianity. But when I read The Pursuit of God, I, everything kind of flipped on its head. And I, I, I thought, I've been misunderstanding this. And really, being a Christian is all about knowing God. It's about having a personal relationship with him and that means knowing what he's like knowing who he is experiencing his character and understanding his character in my daily life and so after that i started to try to find everything i could on on the attributes of god i wanted to know what does it mean that god is holy what does it mean that he's just what does it mean that he's merciful and good and so i tried to read everything i could on the character of god and on the attributes of god and Tozer has a helpful book on that as well called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I want to read you a little, an extended section from The Knowledge of the Holy this morning that I think bears directly on our passage in James chapter 1. So here's what Tozer wrote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. 
Now, in some ways, it's interesting to hear Tozer say that when we're studying the book of James, because often people think of the book of James as this very practical book that gives us wise instruction for daily living and tells us sort of how to live in a way that will go well and, and you know, sort of efficiently and all of that. And we tend to think that the book of James doesn't have a lot of theology, of talk about God and his character in it. And we tend to think it doesn't tell us much about salvation and how we come to Christ and how we become believers in Christ. We tend to think James is pretty practical. It doesn't have a lot to do with God. But I think you've already seen in the book of James that he roots those practical uh, commands and wisdom for living, he roots that in the character of God. And he's quite clear about that. I mean, if you're in James 1 and you look back up to James 1 and verse 5, he describes God as one who gives generously and without reproach. That's God's character. He is a giving, overflowing, good God. And then if you look down to verse 13, he goes again to what God is like. And he says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is not God. He does not tempt us to evil. And so James is rooting our obedience and our daily living in theology about God's character. And now, as we come to this passage this morning in James 1, verses 16 to 18, James is going to make it quite clear, very clear, that in order to be wise, in order to live well, we have to have the right view of God. God is not tempting us to sin, but instead God is the changeless giver of all that is good. And that needs to be our most basic, deepest rooted understanding of the character of God. And that will inform the rest of the way that we live. And so we have a short passage this morning, James 1, verses 16 to 18. And here's how I want to approach this. It's going to be a little bit different than we normally do. All right. I'm going to give you a summary sentence. So if you're taking notes, I'll repeat it a couple times. We don't have PowerPoint and you can jot this down. I'm going to give you this summary sentence, and then I want to try to prove to you this sentence from the text. And I want to do that in three parts. I want to show you how there's a warning against not believing this summary sentence. There's an affirmation of this doctrine in this summary sentence. And then there's a demonstration of how this sentence is true. Okay, so a warning, an affirmation and a demonstration all going back to this summary sentence. And here's here's what I would say is the theme of this passage, okay? Wisdom beckons us to believe that God is the changeless giver of all that is good. Let me say it again. Wisdom beckons us to believe that God is the changeless giver of all that is good. Wise living is rooted in our perception of God, and in particular of seeing him as the one who is deeply good, wholly good, and who does not change in that goodness. So we're going to start out with a warning to prove this sentence, okay? A warning in verse 16. Look there at verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
So I've told you before, the book of James is organized around these these parts where he directly addresses the readers and calls them my brothers or my beloved brothers. And he does this over and over again throughout the book. And you can actually break the book down by by finding these different direct addresses to, to believers. And you can see one of those here in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so this section, verses 16 to 18, is, is kind of set apart from everything else. It's its own section. But it sort of operates like a bridge. It connects back to what's come before it, and it leads us to what we're going to start to study next week, which is verses 19 through 27. And so it's sort of a bridge passage, and it's quite important in our understanding of this first chapter and really of the whole book of James. So in verse 16, it's very clear, right? There's a warning here, a command. Do not be deceived. Well, if you sort of jump into this right at verse 16, you probably have the question, well, what is he worried about? How does he think we are going to be deceived? Well, this goes back to verse 13. Look back up there, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. And so James is warning us against going down that road. Remember, verses 2 through 15 were telling us how to respond to trials, how to respond to adversity. And when we face adversity, one of the temptations that we face is to blame it on God and to say, my sinful response is due to God. It's due to him making this too difficult for me. It's due to him putting me in a position where I'm going to sin. He's the one that's tempting me to get angry and to get frustrated about this. And so let me remind you of our summary statement again, right? Wisdom beckons us to believe that God is the changeless giver of all that is good. And so in verse 16, James is warning us, don't be deceived into thinking that God is not all good. Don't go down this road in the slightest. I'm warning you against allowing this sort of deception to take root in your heart and to change the way you respond to trials. Now, when you read this, none of us want to be deceived. And my guess is none of us here think we are ever deceived. We, we don't think we're ever tricked into something, that we ever believe the wrong thing, that we're always following the truth in every single instance. But the reality is, is that we are all prone to believe lies. I mean, if you think back to the Garden of Eden and to Genesis chapter 3, what was the fundamental thing that happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve believed a lie. The serpent sold them a bill of goods and they bought it. They believed it. They took the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. And the the lie was rooted in this doctrine of God's goodness. The serpent was telling them God is not really good. He is withholding something from you that really would be good for you. And he's keeping it from you because he's stingy. He's not generous. And they bought it. And they believed it. And you and I are prone to believe lies because our desires 
follow after sin, the way they're described in verses 14 and 15. Look back there. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The problem is, is that our desires have been twisted and they've been bent out of shape and now they are often aimed in the wrong direction. We're like an animal that has been tricked by the scent of the bait in the trap and we follow our desires headlong into the trap. And so what do we do to avoid letting our sinful desires deceive us into doubting God's goodness? How do we battle against this deception that is so ready and so eager to trap us? Well, the way we battle this is the affirmation that he gives next in verse 17. We have to constantly go back to the truths that James is laying out in verse 17. This needs to be a core belief, a fundamental affirmation that you and I make every single day of our lives if we're going to battle the deceitful desires of sin. So we've seen a warning in verse 16, and now we have an affirmation that proves to us that wisdom beckons us to believe that God is the changeless giver of all that is good. Verse 17 is an affirmation that we have to let control our thinking and our desires. Because oftentimes our desires get in there and they twist our thinking. And they make us follow wrong reasoning. This has to sink into us at the deepest level. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You can see the comprehensive nature of what James is saying here. Everything is covered under this. Look at, look at verse 17 again. Every good gift and every perfect gift this cover this affirmation covers everything and it's amazing what he's actually saying here he's categorizing these gifts that are given to us into two categories right every good thing to start comes from god so everything that is good or everything god gives to us is good and then he says every perfect gift comes from god the idea there is it's a gift that we may not even perceive as a gift, but it perfects us, it changes us, it makes us complete. This is the same word that is used back in verse 4. Look up there with me. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. That's the same word. And complete, lacking in nothing. The idea here is that even trials and difficulties that we face in life should be viewed as gifts from God that come from his hand that perfect us and that make us whole. And so what James is doing here in verse 17 is he wants us to see everything about the world around us, every aspect of our lives, without exception, as a gift of grace from God. That's what he wants us to see. 
This is a fundamental way of perceiving life. And I think that this way of perceiving life has slipped away from many of us. The Bible teaches us that everything comes to us as a gift from the hand of God. It comes from above. It comes from the same place that wisdom comes from in James 3.17. And God in his wisdom dispenses the circumstances and the daily gifts of life to us out of love and care and just because he is good and fundamentally good. I mean, listen to a couple passages that, that talk to us about this, right? James, or John chapter 3 and verse 27. Listen to what John the Baptist said. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything in your life is gift of grace. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You have everything, your talents, your financial resources, your family. Everything is a gift from a good and a gracious God. So let me ask you, how would your life change how would your day-to-day life change if, if you started to look around you and perceive everything, every moment, every detail as given to you as a gift of grace from God? And a gift of grace beyond what you deserve. You've received all of it from his hand. I'll tell you what would happen for me, and I'll tell you what would happen probably for most of you too we would stop complaining. We would stop complaining. I mean, let's be honest. Complaining does not look good on any of us. It's not a good posture. It's not fun to be in the presence of someone who is complaining all the time. What's happening when my heart complains? What I'm saying to this sovereign and good God is, God, I don't like the way you have ordered my life, and I think I could do a better job of it. And that's what I believe in the most basic, fundamental, rooted place in my heart. I could do it better than you. There's a quote that I've read you before that I thought it would be a good time to read this again by one of my favorite authors, Nate Wilson. And here's what he says. When faced with unpleasantness or trouble, adversity, there are only two ultimate responses with many variations. On the one hand, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. On the other, curse God and die. Variations on the latter can include whining, moping, self-pity, apathy, or rage. Variations of the former can include laughter, song, retellings, and energetic attack of obstacles. There's only two variations. And when we believe that God is good, when this is the deepest part of our belief of God, then we respond with the Lord gives. 
the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or we respond with some variation on that theme. And James wants us to view every gift as something that comes down to us from God. And look how he describes God here in verse 17. Coming down, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is called the Father of lights because he is the creator of the stars. I mean, that's what he's referring to here. He's the creator of all the stars in all the universe. I mean, just think about that for a moment. The hundreds of millions or billions of stars have been created by God in a shocking display of generosity. And the universe goes on and on so that you and I can look up and see those stars twinkling in the night sky and think, those are beautiful. And consider the character and the the unbelievable generosity of God. He's called the father of lights here because when we look at the created world around us, we see the goodness of God overflowing in every detail of this earth. It's shocking. We stop for a moment and think about everything that God has made and how wonderful it is. The immensity of the galaxies and the universe. The tender beauty of a rose bush and peonies, the warm richness of a cup of coffee, the pounding joy of watching a horse in full gallop. God created that. The chubby cheeks of a newborn baby, a gift from God to be enjoyed. And it goes on and on in every detail of your life as you look around of the created world that God gives and gives and gives and he gives and does not change. Look at verse 17 again. He's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's not going to stop being good. The stars in the heavens shift and they change in their course and they're in a different part of the sky. But the God who made them doesn't shift and he doesn't change. He was good when he made them and when in Genesis 1 he looked around and proclaimed that everything he made was very good and he's still the same generously good God. But we, in our sinful brokenness, doubt his goodness and we i complain about his ordering of the universe and what's so amazing about this is we haven't even talked yet about the greatest way that god demonstrates his goodness i mean we see his goodness as we look around at creation But we haven't even gotten to the greatest way that he demonstrates his goodness. And that's in verse 18. And this is the third part of proving that statement to you. Verse 18. This is a demonstration of his generosity to the max. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his 
creatures. So it talks about God's will here. You can see the contrast between our desires, our will as sinful human beings, and God's will. God's will leads him to create a community of believers, to bring them forth out of darkness and into light. Verse 18 again, of his own will, he brought us forth. God literally births us from death, which is our spiritual state when we're born, into life, from darkness into light. It's the same, the same word here, brings forth, back in verse 15, right? This is what our desires do in verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, or it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Those are our desires, but what does God's desire do? His will leads him to bring light to darkness, to give spiritual life to people who are dead. And that is the ultimate demonstration of his goodness and of his generosity. But notice in verse 18, he's not just talking about you as an individual here. It's not just that you received salvation. Over and over again in this verse, he uses the word us. He uses the plural. Because God in his generosity has saved you as an individual, but you are now part of an us. You are part of a church body that is the gift of God to you, the community of believers. And I want you to notice how God does this work. How does he bring forth this community of believers, which is the greatest demonstration in many ways of his goodness. Give verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What is the word of truth? Because that, that's the key. That's the instrument. That's the means by which God creates a community of believers that have new life. So what is that? Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So what's the word of truth that God uses to bring new life to dead people, to demonstrate his goodness? It is the gospel. So, so what is the gospel? What is that that God uses? Well, we have to know the answer to that question because that is the key. That is how you come from being dead spiritually, unresponsive to God, in rebellion against him, under his wrath, receiving new life. It's the gospel that gives us spiritual life. The gospel is the word of truth that brings life. It is not baptism. It's not the church. It's not taking the Lord's Supper. It's not good works. It's not any merit or effort of your own. It is through the gospel. So what is the gospel? I mean, this is vital. For us to know. The gospel, the word of truth, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the good news 
that Christ died for our sins. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And he died for our sins because our sins have separated us from true life. We are born in rebellion against him and separated from true life. And that true life is found in communion with God. That's how we were created to live. And our sins have created enmity between God and man. And they have brought down his judgment and his wrath on us because of our rebellion. And the gospel is the good news, the proclamation that the triune creator God of the universe put in motion a plan of redemption to bring back his fallen creatures, his lost creatures, to bring them back into communion with him. And this plan involved God himself taking on human flesh and serving as our representative because we could not accomplish this on our own. We needed a representative. And so the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth and lived a perfect life to fulfill all righteousness. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins, for your sins, for my sins. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And that victory that he won and accomplished through his death means that he is the true king. And he's conquered his enemies and he will reign over the universe and he will set things right under his final rule and reign. And so the gospel is the good news that Jesus reigns as Lord and King because of his substitutionary death on the cross for us. And when that gospel, as I have just done, is proclaimed, when you hear that gospel message, then you must respond to that gospel message with repentance and faith. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ and his victorious and substitutionary work on the cross and in his resurrection and trust in him and recognize I cannot do this on my own. I need a representative. I need a victorious king. I need a substitute. And when you respond to that good news, the news of Christ's victorious rule and reign through his death and resurrection, when you respond to that, then you receive the gift from God of eternal life and you become a part of the community known as the church. You are brought into union with Christ and therefore union with one another. And when that happens to you, then you grow and you change and you become more like Christ. You become more and more mature in your faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that happens as you exercise the means of grace, as you gather as a body, as you pray, as you read the scriptures, as you take the Lord's Supper. And it's this community, James says, that proves in maybe the most dramatic way, the ultimate goodness of the character of God. Why? Why does this community prove the goodness of the character of God? Because this community points forward to a time when all sin will be abolished and everything will be set right. This is a foretaste of that now because we are people who have been 
freed from darkness and are beginning to walk in the light. And that's what he describes at the end of verse 18. Look there. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the gospel, by the word of truth, that, here's why. Here's why he brought us forth and put us together here as a body sitting on the parking lot, listening to the gospel and fellowshipping with one another, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's a first fruit? I mean, I don't mean to be simple here, but it's literally just that. It is a first fruit. It's the first part of the harvest. It's the the part that comes at the beginning, the portion, and that portion of the harvest shows that more is coming, that you can anticipate that a whole lot more is coming down the line. And so we, the redeemed of God, the church community, we show to the world God's goodness. And we show that his goodness will ultimately triumph and things will be set right. Evil will be judged and righteousness and justice will be exalted. Even the creation will be set right. Romans chapter 8, listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our life together points forward to the world, and to the creation, to the time when Christ will reign victoriously and will be all in all, and everything will be set right. And so, some questions for you as we finish up this morning. Are we, those of us sitting here, are we the type of people who demonstrate the goodness of God by our lives, and by our attitudes? Do we point people forward to Christ's rule and reign and give them a a taste of that? This is what it's going to be like. Do we believe and relish the gospel of Jesus Christ as the greatest demonstration of God's goodness? That's where James goes here. And if you want to grow in your appreciation For God's goodness, that's where you go to. Of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, not of our own, by his goodness and kindness. And lastly, does the gospel cause us to delight in God's goodness each and every day? And delight in his goodness in both redemption and creation. As you look
look around at the world around you and as you look around at the other believers around you, do you delight in God's character and in his goodness? Because that's the way to battle the deception that comes into our hearts in the midst of adversity. When we're tempted to doubt his goodness, to believe the lies, and to give our desires over to sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes and sinful actions. So go back here. Go to verse 17, creation, the goodness of God, and go to verse 18, the goodness of God demonstrated in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's beyond our imagination most of the time just how good you are to us. Our hearts are so easily led astray. We're so quick to, to doubt your goodness, to believe the lie, to complain, to mope, to whine, to get angry. But Lord, help us to go back here. Help us to go to the character of that you display in creation, your generosity. And help us to go here to the unbelievable work that you have done by your grace in giving us new life. And giving us a community of believers that anticipates the full and final end times reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Change us from the inside out by giving us a a clear vision of your character and of your goodness. We ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.